Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In this episode, Martin Indyk talks foreign policy in the Middle East and reflects on his time at Brookings. Then, David Wessel talks wages. Finally, a conversation with the author of a new book on China's presence in Europe. My guest in the studio today is Martin Indyk. He is the executive vice president of the Brookings Institution. He's also been the vice president and director of foreign policy at Brookings. And before that, he was the founding director of our Center for Middle East Policy. And prior to that, Martin was U.S. ambassador to Israel twice during the Clinton administration. And he's also held a number of other posts in government and academia. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Fred. Good to be with you. I'm delighted you're here. Let's start with uh, foreign policy generally. As you look at President Obama's foreign policy uh, over almost eight years now, do you see a coherent Obama doctrine? It's actually emerged uh, most coherently in his own words in this uh, very long uh, piece in the Atlantic Monthly uh, in which Jeffrey Goldberg interviewed him over a number of uh, sessions and and then put it all out in in the Atlantic Monthly a couple of months ago, but the strategy of the Obama doctrine was actually laid out uh, some eighteen months beforehand at the beginning of of last year in the uh, strategic uh, review paper uh, that is published every couple of years by the White House and in that essentially what President Obama stated was. First of all, that uh, there needed to be greater emphasis on diplomacy and less emphasis on use of force. Uh, He has long wanted to get away from the idea that every uh, foreign policy problem has a military solution and that's the way that he feels that foreign policy uh, under previous presidents has has kind of drifted into that, with the most extreme version being George W. Bush and and the wars in in, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, So that was point number one. Point number two, which I don't think has been generally appreciated but came out very clearly in the Obama doctrine, is that he uh, believes that it's more important to address global issues than regional issues. Regional issues, he feels, are ones that will take some time to deal with. The global issues are urgent. Climate change, pandemics, terrorism, nuclear proliferation. Those are the issues that he feels the United States needs to be more focused on. It's not surprising that you see uh, him putting his energy into that. If you look back at what what he's done, his signal achievements are all in those areas, the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, for example, and the Iran nuclear agreement and the efforts that he's undertaken to uh, wage a war on terrorism and in particular on ISIS. Uh, Finally, there is this shift that he has purposely executed in the emphasis away from the Middle East and towards Asia and China um, with his belief that the United States has been too preoccupied, uh, too sucked into uh, the vortex in the Middle East where our interests are shifting partly because of the significant reduction of our dependence on Middle Eastern oil 
and because of the rise of China and the rise in importance of Asia economically on the on the global stage and, of course, the rise of India as well. The two most consequential powers of the 21st century, India and China, are in Asia. And so that what's called the pivot away from the Middle East towards Asia is, is a central part of the Obama doctrine. Now, you wrote recently on the Middle East that Obama believes American interest should be downgraded. Is that a reflection of his pivot away from the Middle East and towards exactly, these other regions? Exactly. And it's a, it's a fairly uh, radical notion um, because, of course, we are still uh, concerned about uh, our allies in the region, um, whether it be Israel, Jordan, the Gulf Arab monarchies, uh, so on. But we're also less dependent on Middle Eastern oil, which has been a driver of this belief across many administrations, probably for the last 30 years, that we have vital interests in the Middle East. Vital interests mean we'd be prepared to go to war for them. Uh, by downgrading that to important interests, I think that, that it goes with Obama's own de-emphasis on, on use of force and looking for other ways to continue to protect our interests in the region, in particular, looking to our key allies in the region to do more. Thinking in terms of, um, say, continuity or discontinuity with the Obama doctrine with the new president next year, what kinds of uh, thoughts do you have on, on the campaign? What would you say to these presidential candidates about foreign policy? Well, two things. I think that um, Hillary Clinton, if she is the nominee of the Democratic Party, which seems to be a fair assumption at this point, will continue a lot of Obama's policy as I've outlined it. Uh, in particular, she was instrumental in the pivot to Asia, um, also supportive of engaged with the Iran uh, nuclear deal. But I think that she will shift back to put greater emphasis on uh, our interests in the Middle East than he has been willing to do. She was more willing to get involved in uh, Syria, for instance, than he has been. Uh, and she it takes a tougher line on, on most of the issues, particularly Iran's hegemonic ambitions in the region where she feels the United States needs to be active in countering that, whereas I think Obama wants to depend on on others, and and actually, in the interview with Jeff Goldberg, argued that that in fact the Saudis and and the Gulf Arabs should share the region, share the neighbourhood. I think is what he said with Iran. That's not something that I think that Hillary Clinton believes is is uh, possible. She's much more focused on on a strategy of containment. I think there. So you see. Uh, a shift. That's not to say that she won't place emphasis on Asia. As I said, I think she played an important role in in that uh, turn to Asia. But I think she's going to rebalance a little bit in terms of focus on the Middle East. In the case of Donald Trump, it's a complete guess as to where exactly he's going to come down, partly because it's not clear that he actually means what he says at any particular moment, partly because in the foreign policy speech, which he outlined last week... Um, which was the most coherent expression of his foreign policy, there was a lot of contradictions in it. Uh, on the one hand, he's going to be a reliable ally, but on the other hand, he's going to make our allies pay for our part of defending them as opposed to 
paying for their own part of defending themselves, paying more for that. And and if we if they don't do that, then he's going to uh, break the alliances, and that doesn't make us a very reliable player. Then there's the whole kind of suggestion that he would enter into trade wars. Um, the big question mark over what he would do with. ISIS, because he says he's not going to let anybody know about that. So you know, we really don't have a good, clear sense of where he's going, except that he's clearly uh, much more in the kind of uh, nationalist, uh, populist, and perhaps isolationist mode of American foreign policy. Let's switch uh, back to the Middle East and focus on that for a few minutes. You've written the foreword to a reissued edition of William Quant's 1986 book, Camp David, Peacemaking and Politics. Uh, Quant was, um, like you became later, a, a member of the White House staff, and he was instrumental in, in a lot of the peacemaking that came during the Carter administration. And that book has now been republished as part of the Brookings Classics series. What did writing the foreword to that book mean to you? Well, one, one thing to point out here is that Bill Quant was at Brookings before he went into the White House as President Carter's Middle East advisor. And then he came back to Brookings afterwards and wrote this book that you refer to. Before he went in, uh, he was a co-author of a uh, Brookings task force study, which uh, also had Harold Saunders, who passed away recently, as, as a co-author and a number of other luminaries that basically drafted the blueprint for President Carter's efforts to make peace in the Middle East. It was hugely influential. Um, so it's a, it, Quant's journey is a very good example of Brookings scholars moving in and out of the administration. I uh, came out of the Clinton administration to Brookings, but, but while I was at Brookings, I was then asked by Secretary John Kerry, Secretary of State, to come back in and be his special envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiation. So for me, writing the foreword of the book, there was a, there was a certain sense of a frisson that that um, Bill Kwan and I in many ways have, have uh, pursued similar paths. But there's no doubt that Quant uh, was more successful in the sense that he helped Jimmy Carter negotiate the Israel-Egypt peace treaty. I had a a role in the Israel-Jordan peace treaty, but that was of less significance. Um, and Quant's lessons from his experience are are uh, timeless. And I think it, you know that was the other point about writing the forward was to resurrect, as Brookings is doing in publishing this classic series, the analysis that he brought to bear then, which is still very relevant today. You, you illuminate some of these lessons in your foreword, but I want to focus in on what you called Quant's novel thesis, that to succeed at peacemaking in the Middle East, a president must take the initiative in the first year of his administration or her administration and complete as much of the work as possible by the end of the second year. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more? Well, that was certainly true in my experience uh, in the uh, first year of the Clinton administration, President Clinton from the get-go, decided that he was going to focus on trying to achieve comprehensive peace in the Middle East. And in the first two years, we made significant progress. We had the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians, this famous signing on, on the White House lawn. That was nine months after Clinton came into office. Uh, next year, we had the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty signed. 
and we were making great strides in the second year towards an Israel-Syria peace treaty, which would have led immediately to an Israel-Lebanon peace treaty, and we would have basically been done. And Clinton sent me out to Israel to be his ambassador there on the front line to work with Yitzhak Rabin, then Prime Minister of Israel, on the Syria deal, which we had secretly been brokering in which Rabin had agreed to full withdrawal from the Golan Heights, which was the critical element that would make a deal possible. So I went out to Israel really believing that we were going to get that deal. And that was in the second year. And fortunately, uh, Rabin was assassinated five months later and, and the whole process cratered. And even though we spent six years working on it, the president made it a priority for the rest of his time in office. We were able to only get one more agreement, a very small agreement, the White Plantation Agreement, which provided for Israeli withdrawal from 13% of the West Bank. And despite the Camp David summit and the, you know, the issuing of the Clinton parameters at the end of his administration, it was by then too late to get the big deal that we were trying to, to make. So there was a lot of wisdom in, in what Bill Quant said about the the tick-tock of making peace in the Middle East. Having said that, President Obama started early on. The second day in office, he appointed uh, George Mitchell to be his special envoy. Couldn't have launched any earlier than that. And as you said, the Cairo speech, which was an attempt to reach out to the to the Arab and Muslim worlds, an early visit to Saudi Arabia. But starting early didn't help him. And he hasn't been able to get any agreements uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, despite uh, that effort. And so it's, it's a necessary requirement to start early, but it's not sufficient. Without leaders like Rabin and King Hussein, like Anwar Sadat and, and Menachem Begin in Bill Quant's time, without those leaders, the United States alone no matter when it starts, cannot achieve breakthroughs. Let's, let's presume that those leaders um, exist. Um, what will it take to That's achieve... That's a big presumption. <laughs> big presumption. <laughs> but for the sake of argument, what would it take then... What are the issues on the ground now that, that, that are preventing a lasting peace settlement in the Middle East, particularly between Israel and its, and its Arab neighbors? Well, it's particularly between Israel and the Palestinians because Israel's a peace with Egypt and that peace is hold, has held, I should say. Uh, Israel's a peace with Jordan, and that peace is held also. Syria is, is kind of disintegrated into civil war, so the idea of negotiating peace is simply on hold for the foreseeable uh, future, and, and, and Lebanon is in a similar situation. Uh, so it really comes down to Israel and the Palestinians, and it's been 18 years since we were able to broker an Israeli-Palestinian agreement. Uh, so to answer your question directly, what are, what are the issues holding it up? I would say that there are really difficult problems uh, when it comes to reconciling uh, the parties on several of what are referred to as the core issues. Jerusalem because it's of its religious sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And the Palestinians because, would like the uh, East Jerusalem to be the capital yes, of a Palestinian state. indeed. But it's also because that area, the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is located, which is the third holiest site in Islam, also happens to be 
the place where the, the Jewish Second Temple uh, was located thousands of years back, which is the holiest place in Judaism. And so they share a common space there. And trying to resolve that issue as to who would have sovereignty over it is, I think, an impossible task. There are other creative solutions to it, but it just shows you what the sensitivity is there. Similarly, on refugees, Palestinian refugees claim a right of return to uh, places that they came from inside Israel proper. Israelis see that as an attempt to destroy Israel by other means if they were to grant that right. So you've got some very complicated issues that have to be resolved. But beyond all of that, because we've been working on those issues for a long time now, there have been direct negotiations on those issues, first under Clinton and now under under Obama and Kerry. And the problem beyond finding answers to those things, and I think we do have answers that can meet the minimum requirements of both sides. The problem beyond that is a breakdown of trust. And that is fundamental. And even if you you could come up with a plan that reconciled the differences on the substance of these five issues, you still wouldn't be able to overcome the mistrust. That uh, trust breakdown, trust deficit is at the level of the leaders. Abu Mazen and Netanyahu don't trust each other. Their relationship is a pretty toxic relationship. Uh, but it's also at the level of the people. Israelis and Palestinians still, a majority, still support the idea of a two-state solution. But similar majorities are convinced that the other side doesn't want it. And the violence uh, on one side and the settlement activity on the other uh, just reinforces that perception that the other side really isn't interested in, in resolving this conflict. And so if you don't have trust at the level of the people, then they're not going to be pressing their leaders to make peace with the other side. And if you don't have trust between the leaders, they're not going to be telling their people, we need to do this. Uh, and so you have you have this kind of perfect storm that mitigates against uh, the kind of breakthrough that 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 is necessary. And as I said, the United States alone can't do it. So even though both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have said that they want to make Palestinians resolving this Palestinian issue a priority, they can't do it on their own unless the leaders and the people there want it. Let's take a short break here for Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Are American workers' wages at long last beginning to turn up? Many Americans haven't had a raise in years. The Census Bureau says the typical man who worked year-round full-time earned less in cash wages in 2014, adjusted for inflation, than a similar man did in 1973. Now, that doesn't count the value of employer-provided health insurance or the fact that the air is cleaner and the water is cleaner, but still, it's pretty startling. And women haven't closed the pay gap with men, but they did do better than men over that 40-year period. One of the many economic surprises of the past couple of years is that the steady decline in the unemployment rate has not been accompanied by an increase in wages, as usually is the case. But lately, as the job market has continued to improve, there are hints that wages are finally picking up. 
Over the past year, hourly earnings have risen about 2.5%, a bit faster than the 2% pace we were seeing in the middle of last year. A recent Labor Department snapshot showed a little uptick in wages in April. Surveys of employers are turning up more anecdotal evidence that they're boosting wages, and not only in those few highly specialized fields where qualified workers are always hard to find. Walmart and Target, big employers, raised their wage floors to $9 an hour last year. They're now up to $10 an hour, presumably because they needed to pay more to attract and retain workers, and because of the growing political appeal of raising wages for low-paid workers. That same politics has led several states and communities, from California to St. Louis to New York, to raise the minimum wage, some as high as $15 an hour. Although many of these increases are staggered over a number of years, so they haven't had effect yet. Presidential candidates Sanders and Clinton favor increasing the federal minimum wage, which has been at seven and a quarter an hour since 2009. Donald Trump favors a higher minimum wage, but he says states should do it. Right now, experts look at all the incoming data on wages and come to somewhat different conclusions about the trend. Economists at Goldman Sachs, for instance, see what they say is quite compelling evidence that the pace of wage increases is quickening. But the last time Janet Yellen, the Federal Reserve Chair, talked about wages in public back in March, she said she didn't yet see what she called a sustained pickup in wages. Now, we're not talking about anything abrupt or dramatic here. We're talking about raises over the past year that on average amount to about $21 a week. But there are signs that wages finally are climbing faster than consumer prices. And because, and because more people are working and those with jobs are working more hours, there's a big plus for the U.S. economy and prospects for consumer spending. But only if this proves to be a durable trend. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. And now back to the interview with Martin Indyk. Let's move on uh, to broader foreign policy issues generally. Um, when you were the vice president and director of foreign policy, uh, you helped uh, set up a new project called Order from Chaos. And, and during that time, you wrote that the, the post-Cold War liberal international order is in trouble. What is Order from Chaos, and what is the liberal international order, and why is it in trouble? Order from Chaos, is, as you noted, Fred, is a, is a project uh, of the foreign policy program, which is uh, the largest program at Brookings and, and has something like, I don't know what the latest count is, but over 30 full-time scholars, uh, both here in Washington and in, in uh, centres uh, uh, abroad in Beijing and, and Delhi and, and Doha. And their work is being concerted now by Bruce Jones, who's the the uh, director of foreign policy, to uh, try to answer in, in a variety of ways uh, the question of how to preserve pr and promote and modify the liberal international order so as to serve not just the best interests of the United States but the best interests of mankind, humankind, I should say. And uh, that, so that's the, the kind of mega project. Uh, and within that, our scholars are studying things like Xi Jinping or Narendra Modi's uh, attitude towards, approach towards the international order, uh, how they want to revise it. They're studying uh, Putin's role. They're studying hotspots like the South China Sea or the Ukraine uh, and uh, looking at the ways in which uh, U.S. Uh, policy needs to adjust to try to bolster 
the international order. In the Middle East, there's a large effort because there the order is collapsing completely. And how do you restore it? So those are the kinds of questions that, that the foreign policy program is addressing. Within that broad rubric, there is a particular task force that we have established that's been working quietly for six months now and that will come out with a blueprint, much like the blueprint that Bill Quant and Harold Saunders produced. And uh, there what we're doing is assembling a small group of high-level foreign policy experts uh, from previous Republican and Democratic administrations, some of whom are likely to go into the next administration regardless of who wins. And we're trying to develop a bipartisan blueprint uh, for a, a presidential strategy to try to create order out of the chaos, to try to chart a path for the next president in a very complicated international arena uh, for how the United States can best bolster the liberal international order, promote our interests and the interests of our allies in, in this very difficult era. And you see this as a role particularly suited to the United States, right? Well, look, the United States since the Second World War has helped to devise, design, and then promote and protect the liberal international order. It's the, it's the international trading regime. It's the international economic institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. It's, it's, it's the whole network of, of alliances from NATO across to Asia in which the United States has played the leadership role in terms of creating an environment in which uh, nations can be free and act independently and, and their people can also. Um, so there's a lot at stake in, in preserving that system but also making sure that it's flexible enough to take account of the shifts in balances of power and in particular the rise of India and China. It's immensely important that India and China, as their power increases, feel that they have more of a stake in preserving the system rather than, than undermining it or opposing it. And, and so that's a big challenge for the next president in terms of how she or he would handle these kinds of, of challenges. The rise of China and India, the collapse of order in the Middle East, the, the assertiveness, even aggressiveness of, of Putin's Russia. Martin, let's, uh, let me bring it back down to the personal level, if I could. Um, you were born in London, raised in Australia, um, and now, now you're in the United States. Can you talk and about your... It's a proud American citizen. Excellent. Uh, can you talk about your path from being a student in Australia uh, to getting involved in policy issues here in Washington and globally? Uh, well, it's a long story, but <laughs> I'll, I'll try to make it short. I, uh, uh, living in Australia down under... Um, you tend to be focused on the rest of the world because there's not a lot, well, certainly not in the 1950s when I was growing up, to focus on internally. It was like a desert with some people living around the periphery. Uh, and so Australians are very, you know, very focused on the rest of the world. And so I got uh, quite captivated by the study of international relations. That's what I did as an undergraduate and that's what I did my uh, PhD in at, at 
uh, first in Sydney and the second in Canberra. Uh, and uh, in between time, I, I uh, was in Israel and uh, was caught up there in the 1973 Yom Kippur War uh, by, by coincidence, not by design, and, and uh, was very taken by uh, the way in which uh, the United States, um, first of all, uh, launched an uh, air resupply of military equipment uh, to Israel. I was there, could hear these C-130s coming in at night. Uh, that really turned the tide of battle. And then listening to the reports of Henry Kissinger as uh, the newly appointed Secretary of State, uh, President Nixon, coming in to negotiate, first of all, a ceasefire and then a series of disengagement agreements. And I became mightily impressed by the urgency of finding a resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict because I witnessed the war up, up front and close and personal. Uh, but also of the critical role the United States could play in resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I kind of had this epiphany and decided that's what I was going to spend my life doing. I never planned to come to the United States at that point, but but uh, went back, did my PhD, studied and wrote about the role of the United States in, in resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict. And then through a serendipitous and circuitous route, ended up... Uh, 20 years later, 1993, with President Clinton going into the White House as his Middle East advisor right at the moment when all of the stars seemed in alignment. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin had been elected prime minister of Israel with a mandate to make peace. The Soviet Union had collapsed and the United States was now the dominant power in the Middle East. Uh, the armies of Saddam Hussein had been thoroughly defeated uh, in 1991, the first Iraq war. And so there was no Eastern Front Arab coalition against Israel and all of Israel's Arab neighbors were in negotiations with Israel when Clinton came in. So so there was this opportunity. I mean, here I was with at a moment when the kind of dream I had of what I would do with my life was suddenly coming to fruition. And I sat in front of President Clinton and said, you know, if you put your mind to it, Mr. President, you could have four peace agreements in your first term in office. And he looked at me and he said, I want to do that. And that's what we did. That's what he did. And I supported him in that. And we were off to trying to achieve comprehensive peace. And I was moved from the academic to the practitioner mm -hmm. in terms of trying to achieve that objective. Again, in classic Brookings scholar fashion. And now for the past 15 years, you've been back here at Brookings as a scholar and as a leader um, in the roles that I described in the introduction. Can you talk about maybe one of your biggest challenges um, in your time here at Brookings? Well, I think that uh, the challenge of, a, uh, of a, a manager at Brookings as opposed to a scholar at Brookings is to concert the activities of the scholars because the, we have 106 full-time scholars at Brookings. It's an incredible resource. And the institution invests uh, in them in the sense that we expect them to do in-depth, fact-based research 
book-length research. That's why we have a, a bookstore in our lobby. That's why we have a Brookings Press, uh, because uh, we believe that our scholars need to be true experts in what they're doing, what, what they're working on. And we also believe that they have to have independence to decide what they should work on and to express themselves as long as it's fact-based opinions and judgments and policy recommendations. And the institution itself takes no position. It's the scholars who take the position. We defend them on that. But that independence and that uh, way of operation means that you've got 106 scholars going in a whole lot of different directions. Now, if you can find a way to concert their activity, then the whole becomes larger than the sum of its parts. Then you've got all of this brain power. If you can focus it on some big issues, then you're going to have more impact, more ability to move the needle on the really important things that matter. Our mission is clear to improve governance at all levels, local, national, global. But how we do that uh, becomes really important. It's really urgent. Today, in, in uh, governments around the world, but particularly here in Washington, people are so overwhelmed with the inbox, so overwhelmed with the 24-7 news cycle that they do not have time to think. And this is a common refrain that we hear from policymakers. It was certainly my experience over and over again when I was in government. And so they look to outside think tanks to do the thinking for, for scholars to be to, to step back from the day-to-day demand of events, to try to think longer term. And so, therefore, we are in a, in a I think, uniquely important position. And what we have to do is find a way to get the scholars, while respecting completely their independence, because that's the power of their work, and preserving it and protecting it, on the other hand, finding a way to give them a broader sense of what they're doing so that where it fits into, into the broader agenda of the institution so that we can maximise our impact. So we've just been through a process of developing a strategic plan. Brookings turns 100 this year mm-hmm. and the plan is like a Brookings 2.0. What do we want Brookings to be in its second century? Brookings was established in 1916 at the beginning of the 20th century. Now we're in the beginning of the 21st century and the world is very different. So how do we roll in the 21st century is what we focused on in terms of our strategic plan. And and to, to bring it back to what I was saying was the greatest challenge is we have worked with the scholars to develop a number of different ways of doing things differently. One of them is to promote collaboration between the scholars and across the programs and have them focus on five broad issues, opportunity and inequality, international order, order from chaos, the digital revolution, energy and climate change, and urbanization. And that covers a broad swath of territory, but it gives the uh, scholars a sense of how when they're devising their 
research they can uh, fit within the broader rubric of what Brookings is trying to achieve. Okay, I think we'll leave it there, Martin. I want to thank you very much for your time today. And you can visit our website at brookings.edu to learn more about Martin Indyk and all of this research that Brookings scholars are doing. Uh, and also visit brookings.edu slash bcp to learn more about and subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. Recently, China's foreign investment focus has shifted to Europe, and its investments there are expected to grow in coming years. In a new Brookings Press book titled China's Offensive in Europe, co-author Philippe Lacore examines this trend. Here's my colleague Bill Finance speaking with him. Thank you, Fred. Philippe, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. Thank you, Bill. Nice to see you. We've heard a lot about China moving economically into Africa and also into Latin America. In the case of Africa especially, Chinese businesses have been interested in natural resources. Why has China now also found Europe to be an economic interest? Well, it took it took them a while, obviously, and uh, you know, with the U.S., the relationship is sometimes uh, stranded by the military and strategic dimension. Um, although there is also investment, Chinese investment in the U.S., but Europe, first of all, what happened, you know, in two thousand and eight, uh, there was something called the debt crisis. Well, I'm sure you remember. Um, and the Chinese prime minister uh, actually found a number, uh, you know, the famous number that Henry Kissinger was looking for. Uh, you know, what uh, number is that? Well, you know, he was he was always wondering, um, you know, which number to call in Europe whenever oh, they oh, had oh, a problem. There was a crisis. So yes, the Chinese yeah. premier Wen Jiabao actually obviously knew that number. It was the number of uh, uh, Jose Manuel Barroso, the uh, at the time the president of the European Commission, and he said, "Look, you know, uh, we can help. Uh, we can buy some eurobonds." Uh, and we can invest in infrastructure. So Barroso, uh, whom I met a few weeks ago at a conference at Harvard, uh, told me the story. And, and he said, well, you know, he was a bit surprised, but said, well, why not? You know, what about, uh, what about I introduce you to my Greek friends? Um, and, and so, you know, that's how it started. Uh, and, and, and Greece uh, was the first uh, beneficiary, if you <laughs> If you want uh, of this uh, Chinese move, not that you know there had not been any interest before. I mean, some uh, private Chinese companies had already uh, built some uh, facilities. Uh, for example, in the telecom field, uh, companies like ZTE or Huawei had been in 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 Europe for for some time and are now holding you know a, a, a quite a large share of the uh, telecom infrastructure. Market. And, and these are Chinese private firms, not not state. Uh, uh, ZTE is state-owned. Huawei is kind of private. I mean, although, you know, there's a lot to say about this. Um, uh, it has ties to the Chinese military and all this. So, you know, they say they are private. But they are also, you know, manufacturers, for example, uh, you know, hire that does, you know, vacuum cleaners and things like that, washing machines. And, then, you know, they, they, they now have quite a name in Europe. So, um, you know, if you want, they, they, there are two dimensions. There's the, the state-owned dimension, uh, but also the private entrepreneurs. And the Chinese are fairly, you know, entrepreneurial and active. Uh, um, but what, what I'm trying to say in the book uh, with my, my co-author is that a lot of things in China, in China are political. And, uh, and the, the big move that started in 2008 uh, was because of a political decision. Let's move an, on. You it know, wasn't an economic issue. It wasn't uh, Latin America or Africa. Well, I mean, uh, to, to, to say the truth, I mean, in, in, uh, in the late 90s, there was a, a previous uh, Chinese prime minister, Zhu Zhongji, who 
who uh, um, decided to encourage Chinese uh, uh, companies to go abroad, and you know the the, the policy was called uh, was called uh, which means going out. Um, and so it was basically going out, going anywhere, going to Africa, going to Latin America, going to Australia, going to Asia, of course. And and Europe uh, was one of the many targets. Uh, many of the other areas I, I, I mentioned were, of course. Uh, known to the Chinese for the uh, natural resources. Uh, when Europe has other benefits, such as brands, the Chinese are desperate to get brands, uh, technologies, acquiring technologies, technology transfers, and, and generally China wants to improve its uh, footprint, its image. And, and, and making it in the West, so to speak, is, is, is quite different from making it in, in other countries. So there are a variety of areas that the Chinese are investing in. And so is there a split between state-owned enterprises and private entities that are investing? Is there like a percentage split you can, yes. you can, you can give us? It's about 70% state-owned enterprise. State-owned. Um, so, I mean, it, it's obviously, uh, uh, you know, state-owned enterprise supported by state-owned banks or supported by state-owned uh, sovereign funds. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a business that's run uh, from the very top. Uh, you do have private companies. Uh, for example, one company we mentioned in the book uh, several times called Fosun, which is a Shanghai-based company. They've invested in Portugal. They've invested in, in Greece. Uh, but they've also acquired a French brand called Club Med, which is well known because it's it's you know holiday resorts and a lot of people have been to Club Med, and so they're basically rebranding Club Med uh, to make it more Chinese and they want to open more villages in 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 China, which is you know f fairly smart. So it's going to be uh, it's not going to look like the the Club Med uh, we know in Europe or in or in um, you know in. Um, Africa, it's going to be more, you know, short-term holidays and things like that, and they've, they've got a few already, and it's it's fairly smart because the Chinese um, uh, want to go on, on vacation, and and they might want to, they, they might not want to have the same kind of vacation as the Europeans or the Americans. You mentioned in the book too that the Chinese have invested in some luxury brands too, and also in French vineyards. Yes, they have. Uh, well, obviously, wine wine is big in, in in China. I mean, 20 years ago, you had literally no wine. You would only uh, drink uh, pretty strong stuff, you know, Mao Tai and this kind of liqueur. Uh, these days, I mean, you would find wine shops in Shanghai, on, on high streets, and in Beijing, and pretty much everywhere. Um, and so they've invested uh, in, in, in about uh, 200 chateaus in, 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 in Bordeaux, for example. That's pretty significant. Um, now, they have, unlike many other types of um, businesses, which I describe in the book, uh, they, um, they have left the French in charge uh, because, you know, uh, running uh, vineyards is a quite a complex business and you don't want to mess up. Otherwise, it, and, 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 you know, the Chinese uh, drinker has become more sophisticated and, and he knows the difference between, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nuit Saint-Georges and, and uh, you know, an average wine. He, he you know, that's, that's quite important. Uh, the Chinese consumer has become more demanding. Well, Philippe, thank you for taking time to talk to us about your new book with Elaine, and uh, I've had a good time talking to you about it. Good conversation. I enjoyed Thanks. it. Thank you, Bill. Brookings recently held an event to launch the book. You can find audio and a transcript of that on our website. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria.
My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, Rebecca Weiser, Brian Smith, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our brand new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu slash intersections. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.